0: So, welcome to this episode of The Journey. Today we have Sam Polish joining us. Sam and I met for five or six years ago at Defy. This is Stephanie, obviously, when we were raising capital. And um, we were introduced through just a random group of events. That's Sam's ice shaking. He's uh, drinking bourbon. So, we're calling this episode Bourbon with Sam. Um, and we probably all need a glass of bourbon to, since our Wi-Fi is not working. But so Sam and I were introduced, a person we knew introduced us to another person who introduced us to Sam. And uh, we went to Starbucks and talked about the auto industry and what we were doing and hit it off. And Sam was a bit was on our board and a big help of uh, Defy um, the entire time. So we thought we would get Sam on and talk to him about his background and how he got into investing and the things that he invests in and um, the difference between family offices versus venture and and private equity um, and all those types of things that go around raising capital as we get lots of questions from people on how do I raise money pre-revenue and how do we set valuations and, and so forth. So we'll get into that a little bit. But before we do, Sam, we, you've got a very interesting background, and we'd love to hear that.
1: All right, then. Well, I,
2: I said that to be a boring lawyer. I, I couldn't, couldn't take uh, going to nice law school, going to top 10 law school, and I skipped over the wall one night thinking all I knew that I liked was listening to music and didn't really care about anything else. So I went and got a job as
1: a clerk at a record store instead of going to law school. So.
2: Just Seems like smart, one. smart decisions. <laughs> it's 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 a it's a common career move, but so it's a boring story. But so, exactly. so that's what I ended up doing. Met a guy who wants to start a record label. We make a record. We can't even put it in our own store because we work at a chain, you know, two hundred store
1: deal. So I convinced the head of operations of that store that I would sell them all the, dis- the distributed North Texas music. And at that time, there was a big Deep alum music scene. So It was a lot of music. that could be in a local section or a Texas section, and they just wouldn't do it. So I started the distributor, and so then
2: I was in a recording studio. I discovered it's for sale, and I'm buying a recording studio. And so I have a record label, I have a distributor, I have a recording studio, and then I need to manufacture So I started manufacturing at that time cassettes and have facilities
1: to manufacture cassettes and CDs. Uh, Never did vinyl. And,
2: uh, so I was completely vertically integrated and kind of the backbone of the North Texas music scene. So every, every year, the local paper would publish the, uh, music awards. And every year I print the same full page ad that says nine out of 10 people nominated for awards, work with my company, Crystal Clear.
1: And that was always true. So, so that's where it all began that,
2: that I just kind of do my own thing. Uh, you know, expected to be part of a corporate legal track and ended up being a complete entrepreneur, never really employed by anybody except when I was 50
1: and wanted to get my CPA uh, for accounting. I
2: had to actually be signed off on by a current CPA for a thousand hours of work. So I went to my friend, Tom Montgomery, and said, dude, does this work, can I just come here and you give me stuff to do for a thousand hours? And you sign off and I get my CBA license. He said,
1: Yeah, sure, just do it. So, so I came to CBA <laughs> r- cool.
3: right old age of 50. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. What was the name of the record company that you started?
1: The company was Crystal
2: Clear Sound and the uh,
3: Crystal uh, Clear Sound, yeah,
2: yeah. So, we had Crystal Clear Recordings, which was one label name, and Steve Records. I just like the name Steve, so I just named things Steve. <laughs> uh, if you ever ask yeah, me, if you ever asked
1: so yeah, see, you ever ask me who I talked to, and I don't know the name. I just say Steve. You ever ask me what Steve. day, so what day something was? It was Tuesday. So I've got no <laughs> answers.
0: So you really had never thought of, and and it would make sense of being an entrepreneur. I mean, like that wasn't a thought in your mind, even though you, like you said, you were. You know, had money and stuff like that. You were going to law school. It was never a path to become an entrepreneur. Never talked about.
2: Right. Exactly. Yeah. It was. It was a. It was a step by step. You know, kind of like every, every day I wake up and I go, Oh, here I am. Okay. Well, the next thing I'll do is this. Okay. You know, the next day I wake up. Okay. I guess I'll do this today, and that's so that's just how it was. I kind of got into it. I didn't have. Any experience, frankly, in music or uh, management. At that point, I literally was getting my massage therapy license, which I registered as a massage therapist. I was getting my MBA at, U- <laughs> okay. at, 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 U- at <laughs> UTD and I was uh, starting all the music stuff and bought the recording studio. And the studio was, is, back then, especially, studios are very capital intensive. So just a board. Mixing board, that classic thing you see in all pictures and recording studios, that was like $600,000 just to get that yep. board. So, so that was a big, a big deal. But so I did, I, for a while, I did five things at once, not knowing what I would do at all. I, at one point, I was in negotiations to buy the massage school that I went to and
1: run a massage school. So, so it, it literally was. <laughs> You know, that sounds good. Did it, I
0: like did, it work out to, did it work out to get people on your record label? You'd give them three massages, you pull it all together?
1: Oh, no, the, the massage three skills people, worked
0: out. Three, three, yeah, I'm sure the they did. Out. Yeah, you've got a hot wife, so worked out. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> That is an interesting, that is just an interesting number of careers and types of things. And it's, it's so funny to me because I went to, to TCU and, and spoke in one of their entrepreneur classes. And it's so funny to me that it's a thing now that you go to school to be an entrepreneur where it just seems like, yeah, back when we were growing up, it's just something you fell into. It's something you, you know, you did. And now people are prepping for it and pitching when they're 19 and have no idea what they want to do when really the the more common route is just go work as a clerk and and then start buying up companies.
3: Well when when you used to be an entrepreneur back in the day you were a loser and broke. <laughs> it's become romanticized now right. so they you know they've got to have classes around it because everybody wants to do it.
0: Right. Yeah, definitely so. Interesting. Oh, and so That's okay, so awesome. Yeah, I'm oh, sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm sure. So when when did all when did the record and the music side of it stop? That stopped. So
2: really, the '90s, pretty much the decade of the '90s, was a few years in, and probably ended mid 2000s. Uh, kind of just as the industry changed, you know. So I was I was there at the record store, literally watching. You know, what draws people to buy records, what, what do people like, how do you shop for records, watching the industry change from all a uh, uh, you know, cute large store where well, it's all vinyl and some cassettes to being a third cassettes and two thirds vinyl
1: to being eighty percent CDs and twenty percent cassettes to being all CDs. And then going and then completely going away when streaming comes in
2: and all the major record labels say, well, how should we we deal with the trend of uh, Napster and free streaming and people hiring the records? Here's what we'll do. We'll raise all the record prices and we'll get really mean and Mm -hmm. teach people to hate us
3: because we're trying to put them in jail for recording the records. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and that just didn't work. It was just stupid. It's like you're, you're telling teenagers that instead of spending 25 cents on a blank disc, you know, at that point, the hard drive space wasn't as plentiful as it is now. Instead of spending 25 cents on a, on a blank disc, you got to spend $18 to get the new copy of the Mariah Carey record or whatever. And, you know, right. you gave them no value
4: proposition. You gave them nothing except, I hate you and I like this. That's it. Right. Yeah. Did so were you um were you tied with like Bill?
1: It was Bill. Oh, like Bill, Bill's Bill. record. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I knew Bill fairly well. He he was one of our, our main distributor customers since he sold a lot of regional bands. Yeah.
2: Music and he was just a, a guy in a rack town. I I'd like, given a guy a little bit of money, he ended up making the uh I can't remember the name of it. It's the story about Bill and Bill's records.
1: I think it's called The Last Record Store. Uh, yeah. It turned, yeah. Out, turned out pretty cool. Oh, to produce that story? Yeah.
4: Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. Man. That's, I didn't, I didn't really invest per se. I, I, I just said, you know, that sounds really cool. Here's a couple thousand dollars. And, you know,
1: go to yeah. um, and start trying to film this thing.
4: Yeah, it is interesting, the changes in, in music, which we go on. Like, I was, what, at some... some Fairly obscure concert, um, uh, five or six years ago or whatever, and it's just it's just strange that you know obviously they're selling CDs in the back, but I look on my Spotify and I just happen to have every CD they've ever released right for free right there, yeah. and uh, it's just it's just it's weird how that industry has has changed. I don't know. It's got to be got to be tough for those guys. I guess they got to just uh, perform a lot. It's not going to happen through through record sales anymore. I guess.
3: Yeah, yeah, lately whole, it seems the like there's a big push. Yeah, go ahead. The
1: whole structure has completely changed now. I mean, it, it used to be...
2: In the old days, if you wanted to have large commercial success, uh, you you were signed on a major label, you'd get a whole bunch of money. but and the, and the label was essentially a bank. It was essentially a research and development fund. And so they know that you know, I was talking to a guy at Atlantic Records, they know that for every 10 records we put out and we sign these guys, we give them a million dollars just for themselves and to get uh, a fan, get proper equipment and things like that to be able to tour and support the record. And that's great, but
1: one in, you know, three out, of three out of 10 of them come near breaking even and then, you know, point something out of 10 of them actually do well enough to pay for everything else. So it's a lot like venture capital, frankly. So it's, it's a yeah,
3: yeah, that's what so, say, yeah, yeah. I was going to say it probably segues into your um... yeah. being And yeah, lately, role I'm sure. seeing a lot of people doing like direct, direct consumer, right? So they're like trying to own everything themselves. So um, yeah. you know, self publishing, self distribution, and all that, and like having a direct relationship with customers, because a lot of these platforms won't won't give you the insights or or any or won't allow you to kind of monetize your fans. And so I'm seeing a lot of people do it more. Um, more direct to consumer and managing it themselves now.
2: Just interesting. So in a way, the, the reason for the initial model where the record labels aren't the banks you go to to be able to fund, they're ready R&D funds. Uh, instead, you've got ready VC funds and you've got ready people who are just willing to put money into startup ideas. But, uh, but all of these things, whether it's book publishing, record publishing, uh, startup is, it's just a high risk R&D you know, pharmaceuticals, it's just a higher, high-risk deal where you're the vast minority, you'll hit one, you know, on our startup portfolio, I got 120X, 160X, and you know, that, that pretty much pays for the rest of the portfolio. And then there's whatever, there's 4Xs and 2Xs and whatever in the portfolio. Yeah. But it's, you're really hoping to be lucky enough smart enough that you've chosen the right numbers on the roulette wheel, but
1: uh, you know, no one can tell there are too many variables. Well, how good is an entrepreneur? What industry trends happen? You, you have no idea. And you just have to be lucky. Right. So you, how, do you, um, how do you
3: sort of, how do you, how do you sort of sniff through the, through that, I guess from either on the music side or the just investment side generally is, you know, how do you, how do you kind of associate value to, you know, these artists or companies that, that you're looking to invest in?
1: Uh,
2: you know, it's a few things and I don't have a set list, but, but one thing is certainly the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur and the team always matters a lot. Uh, just like in music, the artist is gonna matter a lot. Uh, a lot of times you meet somebody and you know, dude, you are a guy in a garage, you have no idea what the actual industry is out there. Uh, you may have this little great idea, but you've got no context for knowing actually whether it's a really good idea because mm-hmm. you just haven't really act- actually been in the environment. It just occurs to
1: you out of the ether that this is a great idea. Well, that's nothing. Uh, that, that doesn't get anywhere. Right. Or you discover that the guy is you know, mentally unbalanced or dysfunctional in some way. And, that the, and the tough thing there
2: right. is that the true, the true sociopaths are really good at it. It's hard to tell that they're really Yeah, you never,
0: you never figured me
2: out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so Stephanie, for example, yeah. was, was, exact, was exactly the opposite. I mean, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> she had worked in, the, in that industry. Doing that software could tell me 50 different people that are both people she can draw on for sources of knowledge, sources of uh, employees, uh, and sources of customers. And, you know, clearly was part of that industry and held sway in uh, decision making, as well as knowing herself from doing it, you know, what are the top 10 things that I know people in 20 different countries, we all talk, and what are the top 10 things that we, we list and say, these are the reasons that our uh, enterprise software does not function well. And she had answers to them and mm-hmm. would, would answer them, but she
1: knew the answers were, She had knowledge and uh, uh,
2: a perception that they weren't that they were answers to real pain points because she was actually doing it, not because she flew on an airplane once and said, you know, the airline industry ought to do this.
3: (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Really, somebody who's more of a practitioner in whatever it is that they're claiming to be um, smart in or competent in is she had a track record and something that she could articulate and speak to that resonated with you and, and other people, obviously, Um, Mm -hmm. which is good. Is there a, uh, is there, is there like a um, a checklist or scorecard or something that you, that you use to gauge that from somebody? Is it just gut feel like just from conversations with them? Um, Maybe a little of both.
2: It's, it's mostly gut feel, but you get the answer when you ask things like, uh, who uses this product and if they tell you something that's non specific then you know that they don't actually know the people they just think that that's who it is you know if they right. if they haven't worked in that environment then you know they don't even know the the name of the division of that large company much less who's the operative guy on whose table it
1: is that day every day is a work description to to be that customer, to do that product, whatever it
3: is. Yeah. Makes sense.
0: Yeah. So, so tell, tell John and Justin and everybody listening, like how, how, how many companies are in your portfolio? Do you and your brother decide together? Like how, how does it work um, in your investment portfolio? Do you do things on your own? Is it a you and your brother do everything together? Just kind of walk us through how that's set up.
2: Yeah, my, my, my brother, to give you that background. He's in Austin and he's, uh, and he's a smart guy. He's, in some ways, he's a ridiculously smart guy. He's skipped his junior year in high school but is valedictorian of his class anyway. Uh, graduated from high school, goes to MIT, has a doctorate of electrical engineering at MIT by the time he's like 25 or something like that and uh, is one of, ends up being one of 10 guys who actually designs the, chips that do analog digital digital analog conversion. And uh so such that literally walking around CES, we were in one booth where there was a five thousand dollar C D player. Uh this is a long time ago obviously uh and and the guy like actually recognizes John's name as the designer of the uh semiconductor chip that
1: is what actually processes the sound. And I'm like I'm like okay
2: <laughs> my brother's the man. But uh, uh, so anyway, he ended up in Austin was managing a semiconductor uh, company, a division of a larger company, and then essentially retired but does a lot of consulting still into being an active member at CTAN in Austin and and so and he's been on the board. So his deal flow is much larger than mine. You know that the C Every year is going to be one of the top three angel networks in terms of dollars placed or in terms of deals made or deals seen. Uh, they've got actual full-time staff that works it, so it's not just a bunch of guys who have to volunteer their time to do due diligence. You know, It's kind of done for them, at least the heavy lifting of having to actually make calls and schedule meetings, you know, keep up with stuff. Uh, so he's got, he's got, in a sense, he's got more of the pure expertise
1: of startup investing. Uh, but, and he sees a lot more things in Austin, it's just a lot more activity for better or worse. There's Dallas kind of has the potentially more or as much valuable activity.
2: Uh, yeah, probably not, but, but still something. Uh, whereas Austin just has the volume of activity. So it's just, just like you can't go to a, You can't go eat lunch and not be served by a guitar player, a piano player, or a singer who's probably better than anyone you've ever heard. You can't do the same thing and not be sitting next to you having a lot some guy who does something in an entrepreneurial company. That's just what people do there. So that's a lot of experience. So that being said, the lion's share of the deal flow comes from where John is in Austin. And some some things he'll just do and tell me about, and it's more just a little bit of reality check when we talk about it. You know, to some extent it's a rubber stamp, we're, you know, we're all 50-year-old-plus guys and, you know, our, our own guys, and if we think really think this
1: one thing works, then we, we do it. But we still want to share the deck,
2: give our opinions, maybe point out two or three things. Sometimes they end up convincing the other person not to go with it just because the the second pair of eyes has pointed out something which, on a little due diligence, points out something negative that the first person didn't think yeah. of. Uh, so it's collaborative to that extent, but pretty
3: much both of us can do what we want. And is it set up, is it just like a fund you guys have together or are you just sort of independently investing yeah. on your own? Yeah, it's just a simple family partnership where uh, the bulk,
1: bulk funds for me and my brother and sister are held. And
2: my sister's my, my, and I don't know what I am, but my, my brother's kind of the brains of the family, and my sister's the heart of the family. Uh, she does a ton of stuff in homeless and manages our Hollis Foundation, uh, through which we actually
1: rehab and start uh, transitional homes and
2: dwellings and multi uh, dwellings for homeless. And, uh, Right now, she's got a multi-million dollar project that she's gotten other donors with and the city of Fort Worth on to do this. Uh, uh, I can't even remember how, remember how many units or how many people it will try to, and a caseworker goes on site, all that kind of support. It, it's really cool. She's, she's amazing. She, just like I can get my CPA at 50, she goes get, and gets her doctorate of urban studies at 63.
1: Wow. that's just what she wants to do she wants to be more informed to be able to come up with solutions for homelessness
3: wow that's really cool and what's what's the name of that fund for, uh, for uh the homeless? that's, that's just the
1: Paulus the Paulus Foundation it had, oh, okay. it had a, the, the, the structures have kind of different names so uh um you know one 24 unit complex is, is called uh uh Palm tree, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. they're just different, just different names of
3: multifamily dwellings, but got it. We just, when we're not, uh, you'll never see our name on
1: anything, we just don't care about that, sure, sure, so cool. we it it. yeah, yeah.
2: So, the name of anything really do cool is just, just Paulus something, but yeah, I don't, okay. I, don't, I don't want to see it on a billboard, I don't want to see it on the uh, on a plaque, the plaque
1: anywhere, I, I don't care,
3: yeah, that's cool. Um. So with the with the you know the deal flow and stuff that you guys are, are are looking at, what stage do you guys typically invest in? Is it angel rounds mostly, or just different series A, B?
2: Yeah, it's mostly angel and A. It's it's at
1: a point where uh, they might even be
2: truly pre-revenue. Uh, I was talking to a guy and. At once in a little while ago, and his definition of pre-revenue was, you know, it's pre-revenue, they don't have, they, they only got like 3 million in sales. And I'm like, that's like way post-revenue from where I'm <laughs> <laughs> Right. I have invested in a company in 10 years that has, you know, already 3 million in sales. It's definitely before that. So it's very early. So like in Stephanie's case... I mean, I'm, I'm virtually, and Defy, I'm, I'm virtually the first non-friends and family investor, and I'm, you know, mm-hmm. if not 80% of the, I think I might have been 80% of the first little preferred seed round, uh, mm-hmm. and I've got one now where I'm essentially 80% of the
1: first little seed round, and I'll be, just to be friendly, I'll put in 20% of the next uh, A round, uh, But, yeah, so so it's very
2: early stuff. We're really judging uh, things that you're thinking of in theory and capability as opposed to uh, solely fire on the gas of a fire that's already, you know, gas on the fire for something that's already going. You know, something's already got $2 million. It's been in a certain region. It's got a percentage of market in that region. It's got some sales. Well, that's, you know, that's post-revenue. You've proven something like what percentage of the addressable market you can handle or that you can do, uh, mm-hmm. or that likes your product to begin with, and so it's possible for you to do, and it's a question then just of practicality as a scale. Uh, so usually, usually it's,
1: it's before then, and, and yeah. we've gotta, we, we have to assess one of two. We've got to assess two, two things, basically. Well, there's a premise, and then
2: there's assessing two things. The premise is that we are boring guys, and we are not consumers, so we will do no consumer products. I've got no idea what's going to be the next great energy drink. I've got no idea, you know, whether this thing works out or not. No idea, idea at all. And it has no. So we're going to stick to things that are B two B. We're going to stick to things that have objective value propositions. Uh, but after that, it could be anything. It could be a, a drug company. It could be a drug delivery
1: system that is objectively better than the old delivery system. Uh, very rare that we would invest in a, a totally novel drug because then that's
2: way out there on the objective value proposition. You don't, you don't know whether it even exists yet or not really. Uh, will be on things that have an objective value proposition to their set of potential customers. That is, you will save this much money or you will be able to drive this much in sales if you use this product and that product costs you somewhere between 10% to 25% of what you will make by having. And that's so there's the objective value proposition applied to the unit economics of whatever the product is. So the unit economics have to make sense. I've got to be able to say to myself. That guy's going to go to independent insurance agencies around the country.
1: And that guy, and I have to understand what that guy's, being in that
2: guy's shoes are like, what does he care about? What, is, what does he want? What's a, a good objective value proposition? Does he care about another $1,000 a month or is that stupid? Is that, is that negligible? Um, you know, depending on what the, what the proposition is. And well, once I get past the unit economics of it, to know, okay, I think that's a valid, Product and it's a valid in a fairly objective kind of way. As long as your customer is, is rational, then they will decide to buy this product. A lot of times customers right. are irrational, so so you still like like I've got a product for car dealers right now. Car dealers are not rational. It's very <laughs> frustrating. We have a yeah. very objective value, very objective value proposition, but the dealers are too irrational to talk about it. Uh, and the yeah, it is, a
0: good, is, it is a good product that you have. So, I'm surprised it's not going well because it's a very good product.
1: Yeah, it's good. It's going, I mean, it's going well in a sense,
2: but it doesn't seem like it would be such stunningly new technology. And, and you know, for the rest of you guys, what it is is a, a geolocation of cars and keys. So, if you're a dealer, a guy walks up wants to see the 2014 BMW he saw on your site. And you go, okay. Uh, well, come on inside, someone's going to have to go find it. Someone's going to have to go find the key, someone's gonna have to go find the car. I mean, that is what I do every day, right? I, I bring the car in, I park it somewhere on the lot, I run it through conditioning if it's a used car, and then I show it to you. I have to find it, I have to find the key, and I have to go show it to you. And in fact, if it's an in-demand car, three people probably want to do that around the same time. So some dude's got the key in his pocket, he doesn't have it where we usually use keys, and I leave keys. And what this system does is enable you, in a live sense, to locate all those assets. customer never waits to go on a test drive, you find the car immediately, some back can bring it right up front in five minutes, Uh, and then aside from that, you can end every night going, yes, I see every key is still in the key room, and I see every car is still on the lot, and the four that are not, I see the noted reasons why, because they've been checked out. It's a complete asset management kind of system, very objective. And you know, it saves you time and money lost keys. Keys cost people like four or four, five hundred bucks a key. If you lose a key a week, you're out two grand a month, and our service may cost a thousand. So it's, it's a
1: yeah. it's easy, it's easy. But at the same time, you yeah. know, dealers are sales guys and and uh, highly ego-driven. And it's sometimes it's hard to convince them of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So but, So basically, but, uh, you can go through the entire analysis, pick a company that seems like a winner but doesn't mean that it's going to win, even if it's got a good value proposition.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes there's something yeah. about the industry environment that just says, you know, those, I know those guys, those guys will never buy into that kind of thing. Or right. You know? Right. Uh, so that's tough. So
2: that's why at least for, for my brother, John and I, we stay in the BDB area where people have dollars and cents and, and uh, practicalities and, Uh, functional processes that have to go on that, you know, there's a high probability that they have to act rationally and that what we're bringing to them has a rational and objective value proposition. And that to us kind of limits our uh, failure because it's not like the record industry. It's not, I mean, I've never had a band really succeed that I totally loved. All the ones I
1: totally loved failed, you know, from back in the music days. Uh, right. So you know, I've learned that
2: that just doesn't mean anything, You know, uh, it, it makes a great story in retrospect. And um, five years later, the band hits it hits it big, and you say, "Oh, I love those guys." But frankly, that was not the good reason to pick the band to be successful.
0: Right.
1: There's uh, there's someone yeah. for everyone, and there's somebody that loves every band a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And and most of your so you're most of your deal flow comes then from the actual group that your brother belongs to so right so people because people are always asking us how how do we find investors that invest pre-revenue and um and you would and most of the people who find you guys go through the angel angel network is that accurate uh
2: for the for the lion's share of the contacts yes For the ones we end up choosing, kind of, because the ones we end up choosing, at this point especially, are almost invariably ones that are championed by or also invested by guys we know that tend to think like-minded. So when they looked at it, they had a thought, I like how that guy thinks. So I'm already kind of on on the bandwagon. And also, he God. knows what I look, I look for, so he says, hey, Sam, you ought to look at this, or John, you ought to look at this. He knows it's already in the, in the realm. So it, it, the ones we end up selecting invariably have a, a push or a connection to somebody we know that has brought them to us uh, a little more, even though there's a lot more in terms of numbers that run through the process and just kind of come across the desk.
0: But then those deals that those guys are bringing to you, how are they finding them? Are they going through angel network groups? There's just random connections of people they know?
2: Yeah, so it's both. It's it's both, and it probably depends
1: on, uh, you know, as a guy who's more experienced
2: doing it, if you've been doing startup investing for 10 years and you've uh, had at least a couple of relative successes, and you've learned some things, and you've got some compatriots who have invested with you, then you start to rely on your networks more than you are just feeling like you've got to look through the next uh, class yeah. of 10 guys who apply to CTAN. I mean, you're, you're, not, you're, not, you're kind of not doing it anymore. You're looking at it, and something pops out at you, fantastic. But you know, right. in a large part, what I spend every week doing and having actual meetings about are stuff that Steve so-and-so brought me. Or somebody somebody brought me, here. some guy said, "I meet this guy." Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's that's more how it is. And then defies like that. Uh, my yeah. current one true true spot is like that. Uh, the uh, you know open lending in Austin was was a guy that I just plain knew, did my taxes, and ultimately became oh, really? the CFO. Yeah, yeah, Rob, yeah, Austin, huh? open lending, did my did my taxes. At this point, probably thirty years ago. And, really, uh, I
0: didn't know that. And,
2: again, uh, huh? I, yeah, yeah. So way back then, like I, I was just myself. You know, I wasn't even married yet, and I, was, I gave him fifty thousand. He was looking for way initial seed money. But, yeah. Uh, but but then when it came time he needed, you know, five hundred thousand, and it was more of a bridge with warrants kind of thing. You
1: know,
2: he knew me, and I knew him, and.
1: He's in Austin and
4: John's in Austin. So luckily they could hang out a good bit and get invested and get even more invested in that company. So, so Sam, um, so I've got a million, a million questions for you actually, but let me, let me start with, um, this, the draw to this. There's a million ways that you guys can use the, the capital in your, in your family partnership, and you chose this route. So what's the, what's the draw? for you? Is it just that you think you can get a higher ROI during this, doing this than, than other alternatives? Or is it more complex than that? Just what's the draw to this mode of investing for you?
1: I I think there's
2: the the first thing to it is that both my brother and I are just inherently, uh, company runners. I mean, he he had more of a, a technical career path, you know, normal corporate, and you taught at NC state for seven years. You know, in technology that's what you do. you get an IT, you're a doctorate, you teach somewhere for five or seven years, you get tenured, then you end up at some company, then you are up being the, the hired gun by equity at
1: some startup, and now you end up essentially retiring from that and being a startup guy. But, uh, so, so to some extent that's just how both of us
2: think. and maybe that comes from our father who was always a, a CFO and uh, large industry guy. So our, our head just immediately goes to, even as a kid, I would sit at a restaurant and I'd go who makes toothpicks? I need to get thousands of toothpicks from restaurants. How many do they go? <laughs> Does it, you know, I, I would think about that when I was eight. When I, was eight. I, I, don't, I don't know why I'm to trying to go into law school yeah. and doing that stuff when that was what my head worked like when I was eight. <laughs>
1: uh, But anyway, that's the one part. That's
2: just our mindset. And and for us, uh, the next thing with that is that we knew that that you walk up to a roulette table. If you're going to walk up to a roulette table and play five numbers and then walk away, you're an idiot. I mean, you're you're just making a one out of
1: eight bet roughly, and you're going to lose and you're going to walk away. If you want to have it be any kind of thing, then you need to bet on more numbers and you need to keep more spins on the wheel. So
2: in startup investing, if I, if I had the, uh, I mean, if, if we did it for a year, kind of just did it as a lark and for fun, then we probably would have had six or eight failures and we'd go, God, this is crazy. You just lose all your money when these things fail. Uh, but instead, yeah. we, from, the, from the beginning, we were like, you got to have 20 of these. And if you don't have 20 of these, then you don't have then the chances of you finding the one guy who's going to be a 20X is very slim. So you've got to have enough of a sample out there to catch the, the one that truly pays for the whole portfolio, because that's just how it runs. Half of them are going to completely fail. Another quarter of them are going to hobble along. And if you've got a debt structure to it, to where you're the first guy that gets paid when it gets salvaged, sell, then okay, maybe you get your money back. You know, And then a quarter of them... The last quarter of them actually make money, you know, which just means they're more than one X, which is actually a loss if it goes five years and all you do is get your money back, uh, right? You know, and then it's that top
1: five percent, ten percent that get you the
2: two X to fifty X that end up being you know real return on the investment that pays for the whole thing. Again, it's an R and D process.
4: Yeah, and it's but but like the roulette table, no matter no matter how you approach it, it's gonna come back to an average. It's just gonna come back to some return. If I put a hundred thousand dollars in your pocket to spend on roulette and you either do it in one spin or five thousand spins, yeah, you're gonna get variability out of the one spin, but but you're gonna come back to an average. Right. And um and then the same thing with you investing in this market segment. Yeah one thing offsets yes. another and all the probabilities offset another and your, and your skill plays into it a lot. So, but, but I guess for you, uh, well, I don't know. I, I'm putting words in your mouth to say that a, you have a talent That's for great. sorting through those probabilities and you enjoy sorting through the probabilities. And then, uh, so I don't know if it's that it's fun or if it's like, no, I know I can get 15% if I do it this way, but if I do it this other way, I think I can get 30% on the portfolio or if it's, no, it's not really about the 15 versus the 30. I just love finding the 60X and I don't mind yeah, going so through through the zeros to get there.
2: Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, getting back to really answering that, the premise is that that's kind of how our mind thinks anyway. We think about how companies really do. And so it kind of lends itself to that entrepreneurial stuff. And, and all I've ever had in my career is really fairly small companies. So, I'm used to what does it take to make a company work? How do you have a company with five guys, 10 guys, 20 guys, 50 guys, not? 700, not a
1: 1,000, not 10,000. But then, secondly, you understand that uh, you can play blackjack or you can play roulette. The roulette is a little more
2: fun. I've got a natural tendency to think like that. And if if I have no house advantage, if I play roulette without the zeros on it, and that means that if I play roulette, I get the market return. And if the market return is 8%, you know, take a look at 10, 20 years, look at S&P, look at other, other types of propositions. If you could make 8% your whole life, you're probably doing fine. You're, you're, you're average. Uh, so if I can, I'm going to take that area and try to do better than 8%. If I'm playing blackjack and with those kind of odds up and down, I probably can't do that much better than 8%. But on the roulette table, there is a possibility that I can do much better than 8% because there's, yeah. there's exponential exponential returns on some. Of them. And, and that's always kind of, that's both fun. So we've got a proclivity to it, a natural te- inclination to it. We understand how that works. It's a bit more fun. We understand that if you're going to have a fund of startup companies, Your your goal and your five year reality is probably that you're going to compare yourself to the dude who's thick in public securities, and did he make fourteen percent? Okay, well I made fourteen percent too. Okay, that's great. You did it your way, I did it mine. I'm 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 good. If I did better, then I did better. But I've got no illusion that in the end I'm not more brilliant or more lucky than anybody else. And if startup investing were blindingly better and rationally and objectively better than doing straight up public securities investing, then more
1: people would do it. That's that's the way markets work, right? You know, wherever the money is, things gravitate toward that. So it can't in the end be that different on the large numbers.
4: The other thing I and maybe comment on this that I kind of hear in you is when you describe the, what you like to invest in it, and I'm not a Warren Buffett expert or anything like that, but it sounded Warren Buffett-y to me in the sense of, so, if I, so I'm a big efficient markets guy, index guy. I, I don't know how companies out there sustain their valuations. And if I were to actually, this keeps me up at night in terms of, if I, if I just thought everything shut down and the, and, and the market just had to cash flow out and justify its valuation, then I don't think it could, but yet supply and demand of cash. And I just believe the market has a gravitational force to grow with economic growth and all that stuff. So, so it's weird that I kind of invest in this machine that I really don't understand the working parts, but I kind of understand how the machine works and all this stuff. So it's just a very conceptual kind of thing that I'm investing in um, that has a nice 100-year track record behind it, right? Um, right? But But the things that you're investing in, you understand the value proposition and the unit economics for every the t- you, you're not investing in concepts maybe investing in concepts or really you're investing in something that if i pay $1000 for it it's going to have an ROI of 4x and that makes sense to you and so you can kind of touch it's just way more tangible and way more you can understand why it would make money versus my index kind of market approach and i don't know if that's the type of feeling that you like about your investments as opposed to, no, there's this tidal wave of market forces and economic forces that's just going to cause this to go up. Forget about why it's trading at a 16 multiple or a 20 multiple or whatever. It's just, it's the market. So, so I don't know if those feelings are just more comfortable for you to know, really know where your money is, if that, if that plays into it at all. Yeah, um, yeah. A couple, a couple things with that. First, I think your feeling is universal
2: and that's why there are uh, there's a buyer for every seller. That's why there is a market. That's why there are pundits that will say one thing, and another guy will say the opposite thing. That there are just too many variables for that seemingly most boring and most objective aspect of buying
1: and trading public securities. It's still a complete uh,
2: who knows kind of thing. And my brother, for example, is quite a value investor. So recently, I invested in a company. Because it, it had gotten all, all the way down to where it's trading at two x EBITDA and it's less than its book value of assets, and so it's like this is just stupid. It's way it's way below now. It's gone up seventy five yeah. percent in the, last, in the last two weeks. Good call, yeah. you know. But yeah. a, a different, literally a different set of two weeks, and you could be totally wrong on that. And frankly, for some reason, the whole market trends toward the. High flying tech trending companies than it does toward the value of companies, which is kind of unobjective or in a sense. But uh, but yeah, regardless of so all that cool. of all that,
1: you know the one thing about the two differences is that you know cruise ships tend not to sink. Little sailboats they tend to sink. You know you
2: know I've got no idea, but I would bet you that small crafts with their less professional uh, sailors and their smaller boats and their lack of knowledge sometimes about weather patterns makes them just plain fail. And that's the startup industry. That's the small business arena. And uh, they can do great because uh, the, the big cruise ships kind of do what they do. And it's a commodity market and they can only make so much. You can only charge so much for it, et cetera, but it's not going to sink. So that's what you, those are your two choices. Do I, do I invest in things that kind of day-to-day circle around making me 8% a year, or do I invest in things that make me negative 100% sometimes, but also yeah. plus 500% sometimes, and knowing that I'm, I'm good if I did better
1: than 8% a year?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and then finally, I'll, I'll turn it back over, turn it loose, but and tell me, is – Fairly personal, but I'm really curious. So, so figure figure out how you want to answer. It's fine, but but in terms of how you just allocate, like, so you've got your San Paulo's balance sheet, your money, and and this type of stuff, good, bad, or otherwise, it's pretty illiquid. Unless unless you get, like you say, whatever. If you have a thousand things in your portfolio and things are just cashing out, you know, at different times, I guess you build some liquidity there with with the turnover in it. But it can it can dry up fast and and all these things. So anyway the liquidity of it doesn't seem great. So how do you, my question is, how do you allocate um, your money between what goes into this type of investing and what stays out of it from a liquidity standpoint? Do you just keep a bunch of cash and then pour your investable assets into this? Or do you do cash and some some liquid publicly traded stuff and then pour into this? Or do you just have everything in, in this type of thing. Just how do you allocate
0: your resources? Amongst yeah. those and before things? before you answer, since asked you a personal question, a lot of this drives from our personal conversations. Yeah, yeah, too, I, right? we got some money, right? So yeah, so yeah. The, so John would invest. John would invest one way. I would invest another way, right? And then how do you decide how to do that? And so we've had lots of conversations over the last you know couple of years about how to do that. And like one, like like I love real estate, and so if I was single. Um, I would probably have invested in in a lot of different real estate and various things, you know for various reasons. I like houses, I like real estate, I like looking at them, um, I like rentals I, you know all that kind of stuff but but when i when i but I do it because I enjoy it, not necessarily because I 'm going to get a better return. So if I suggest something like that to John, uh, John will show me the last hundred years of the market and why it gets a better return and why that should yeah, be where was, all the assets are. And then he'll say, well, if you want to lose money, we can invest in that. <laughs> um, so I'm just saying that as a, you know, just ha- how you decide, um, you know, am I going to put 100% into this fund stuff or am I going to split it out between that? So I just, I'm giving a little personal background on us since he's asking you a right. personal question.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, the absolute numbers, of course, to spend depend on the scale that you're talking about. If you got $20 million, then what's 10%? What's, what's 20%? And with some things, you need to have a, a minimum. Like you wouldn't do a ton of startup, startup investing if you only had a million dollars. Uh, because I don't think of wanting to put more than 10% of your value into true startup investing. Uh, I think that would be foolhardy. Uh, okay. Now, now we, we started out with that thought, probably ended up more like 20%. Uh, just right. because after a while, you. you, you you're, you're, start you get ingrained in the uh, culture and you start to not be able to say no sometimes or things you go through these periods of
1: damn it everything's looking good to me right now.
2: I gotta stop because for some reason everything looks good right
1: now. Which must be that right. I'm just not in a frame of mind to be picky. And I have to be. <laughs> uh,
2: so 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 and the, the second thing I hear is that you, you you've got one thing that you love love doing, which naturally means you're gonna be better at it. It naturally means you're going to want to spend more time learning about it, and that's not going to be painful. It naturally fits into having an enjoyable life because you would enjoy the analysis, which is, on the other hand, what some other guy is getting paid to do who doesn't necessarily enjoy it at all. You're lucky enough to enjoy it. So, you know, in your position, I'd put put 10% into startups, I'd put 20% into real estate, and I'd put 70% into other types of securities, and those would be everything from... Uh, You know, I have some mix in there of things that I bought because they were high on the value scale and their multiple is just crazy cheap and I'm going to buy them. And then other things that I I don't give a shit what the multiple is. You can't not buy Microsoft. You can't not buy Amazon. You can't not buy Apple. Those guys will own the world. It it is stupid to bet against them.
1: And so I don't get not having that in a portfolio.
4: Yeah, that that's the most hilarious thing because we've all we've all been um adults from from Amazon's formation when it was a bookseller and we all were aware of it. We knew it was a bookseller, we knew what Bezos was trying to do. So we were all fully aware of Amazon at every stage in its life cycle. And it's still and 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 so I can't tell you how many times I thought I've said Amazon's a great company, but it's too expensive. You can't buy it now, it's too late, it's too late, it's too late. It's too late that thing's got like a hundred percent average annual return for the past 15 years or whatever, just the growth. And it's been crazy from points that I would have said it's way too high. It's way too late in 2002 to invest in AMO, Amazon. You should have done that in 1998, you know? And so it, it's funny looking at those large companies that have gone up, gone up that way. And um, so you just never know.
0: But, but, that, but that's a imbalance. Yeah. balance. So, but first, yeah, any, no, it's great first, perspective. First you, get, you can any, get the
4: impression that this is, this is, for me, you get the impression that, well, this is where all his money is. It's the small right, stuff. And no, 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 there's a pie. There's an allocation. Right. And, um, yeah. yeah you know.
0: So first, first, it needs to be, uh, your investments need to be things that you care about, things that you want to do, whatever. So if you're a family that doesn't like real estate at all, don't invest in real estate. If you're somebody who doesn't like looking at the stock. It, so so it has to be stuff that you look like and then uh, and then keep the right balance with the right minimum. So if you don't have at least a certain amount of money, then 10% startups might not make sense. You'd need to, which is conversations that we've had. As yeah, well. and so I
1: think, it it's, yeah.
4: I think it's, it's a lot about um, knowing thyself. And, and yeah, for me, if I had two investments, one that would make 10% with absolutely no work, no thought, no expertise. And as a matter of fact, the only thing my expertise can do is hurt me because I believe in efficient markets. And I believe if I think I know something that, that the market doesn't, I may win, I may lose, but that's it. I may win, I may lose. My expected value is the market return. So my expertise does nothing for me in an efficient market. And so that's how I tend to think about things. And I tend to think, well, if I've got to work for one 10% and not work for another 10%, why would I take the work for the 10% over the not work for the 10%? So passive has huge, huge. But but if I enjoy working and I enjoy that process, then I would take a 5% over a 10% if, if, if I get to live my life for 30 years doing something I enjoy and it's only going to make me 5% and I could have made 10% sitting in my backyard, but I'm ready to you know, load a gun because I'm so bored, then no, I would take the suboptimal return with an enjoyable life over a more optimized return with a boring life every day right so you just got to know what fits for you i think and um yeah you do uh, do. i mean plus or minus that eight percent number and it's not plus or minus zero
2: plus or minus that eight percent number if you've got x dollars for investment and there's one segment that you enjoy doing and it does eight percent don't think twice about it you're making perfectly good investments and you're enjoying doing it that's there's nothing that you could be doing if you discover it's five percent, well. You know, you may be having a hobby or you may be missing some trend or something like that. Maybe that can be improved. But, you know, it's costing you a little bit to do that, that kind of thing. But depending on what we're talking about and whether that's a 21st, if you're making 5% versus 8% on 10% of your portfolio, and that actually brings you a lot of joy,
1: well then that's not that much. I mean, you're you're spending Mm -hmm. a couple percent of your worth annually or the return on it. Uh, right to have that enjoyment that, that makes sense that's living a life right yeah.
0: yeah yeah
4: so good that's
0: good all right well we've kept you on here for about an hour but those and we probably could go longer but super interesting and we appreciate you jumping on and sharing your background and thoughts and opinions with us you've uh, definitely got the most interesting background i think so uh between the four of us, at least. <laughs>
1: yeah, <it is. laughs> that would yeah, not that be would nice. Be right. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't
0: it say is.
2: that. I yeah. listen. No, I'll, I'll pose the opposite, too. I, I envy, I mean, I'm 56. I envy all these guys that are 56, and they spent 20 years in some industry. They know it very well. They've socially known a group of guys who are now the CEOs and CFOs and C-suite guys at larger companies. They've got access to other yep. deals and they have a context of hard knowledge that came to them for 20 years of working in a particular industry. And they've got some really cool opportunities. Yep. Uh, and I, yeah. And I envy that every day because to some extent, I've just kind of been on my own on this small boat, you know, navigating the seas. And I'm, I've, to some extent, I've never seen, well, how do you run one of those bigger boats? Just, you know,
0: right. how, does that, how yeah. does that work? Yep. So, There's definitely uh, definitely pros and cons about everything. If you could only just live your life multiple times, choosing a different adventure each time.
2: Maybe but, yeah, you can. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, for me, that's, that's that's partly what I had to do, not not what I wanted to do. It's like, okay, I hate this. So this is what I have to do. I've got to throw myself on the sea of opportunities and pick a couple. And that was cool. But, right. Uh, A lot of times, I hear people who who just took the, uh, you know, I'm an intern, and I'm this, and I'm assistant, whatever, and I'm this, and I'm senior, and and I'm whatever. Now, I've got the culture, the contacts, and the hard knowledge uh, that it takes to now make these investments that hopefully I've amassed some, some money to make those investments, and you just do whatever scale you got. And, uh, and that can be really profitable. I'm a, I'm a contentless guy. You know, I have to rely on these people like Stephanie who truly know a given industry and decide whether to invest on them. Because there's no industry practically that
1: I truly know except maybe news.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely different, different paths for sure. And yeah. both good. So very cool. Well, enjoy uh, the rest of your corona lockdown.
3: Yeah, <laughs> we'll talk. Let's open it up. Let's open it up this week.
0: That's true. Yeah,
3: have a phase,
2: phase uh, approach. Yeah, I'm not sure you can pull me, up, pull me away from just hanging out by the pool in the backyard every day, though. Right. <laughs> I know. All
0: right. Yeah, keep keep doing that through the summer. And uh, do you want to do you want to end the call? Sh- do you have any ice left in your glass to shake? Because we're gonna call it bourbon with Sam. There we go. Yeah, I, there we go. <laughs> that's, really
1: that's, yeah, that's, that's like
0: an <laughs> That's the ender. Yeah, right.
1: so, you know, not, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I figure it's not. An right, first, first,
0: <laughs> but... yeah. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Yeah. Thanks. thanks. All, right. All right. Thanks, anyway. you
0: guys. Bye. Yeah. Bye.